And as you sit, please take out your scripture and turn to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Allison Stewart is a former reporter and news anchor, and she also wrote a book called Junk, Digging Through America's Love Affair with Stuff. She reports some staggering statistics about the self-storage industry. Self-storage has its own association and lobbying group, she says. It's a huge business that generates more than $24 billion in revenue. $24 billion in revenue in self-storage. The United States is home to reportedly 48,500 to 52,000 storage units. That's about 2.3 billion square feet of storage. It's a business that has been called recession-resistant by the Wall Street Journal. It has even become fodder for reality TV, hasn't it? Where we we watch, we sit, and we watch people open up these storage units, don't we? We spend our time watching people going through other people's stuff. American pickers, auction hunters, buried treasure, flea market flip, Hoarders, junk gypsies, junk ward, junkyard wars, pawn stars, picker sisters, storage wars, and it can go on and on and on and on. We love our stuff. We love our stuff. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who has a storage unit in this congregation. But <laughs> There you go. Just take a moment to think, though, of what possessions you might have a hard time getting rid of. I can tell you from experience, one of mine, it was, and my wife will probably remember this, it was a round, black, thick slate table. It was about three feet across. It was probably an inch or two thick. This thing weighed a couple hundred pounds. You remember this? It didn't fit anywhere in our houses and in our apartments in our, in our early marriage, but I dragged it from apartment to apartment. Even it had these wobbly, really wobbly for uh, um, uh, legs that could barely hold this thing up. But I dragged it from place to place to place. Why? I just had a hard time letting go of this thing, even though it didn't really fit into our lifestyle or our apartments. Possessions are important to us. And today we'll see in our text a lesson about possessions. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar... Arioch, king of Elassar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, 
These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these forces joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim of Ashtaroth Kariam, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shava Kiriathiam, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the countries of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and all the possessions of Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Aram, Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. I'm going to pause there because here we have a lesson in being possessed by possessions being possessed by possessions. Basically, what we have here in these first 12 verses is a suppression of a revolt. A suppression of a revolt. King Ketaleomer of the region of Iraq, he came from the region of Iraq, had 12 years earlier apparently conquered a big portion of the promised land. And part of conquering a people at that time, was that the conquered people would pay taxes, toll, and tribute to the conquering king. The vassal nation would pay. They would pay those taxes and tolls, but they'd also pay tribute, which meant that they would, if they were attacked, this king, Kedilomer, would come and protect them. According to verse 4, in the 13th year, these this region of the promised land with all these various kings decided not to pay that tribute anymore. We're, we're going out on our own. We're not going to pay this tax anymore. And so they revolted. As was the custom, the conquering king then came back in the 14th year, according to our text, to reestablish control over this area. That's what's going on here. And it comes down to King Kedileomer having this four-king coalition from the north and from the east who comes down, comes down the, the east side of the Jordan River, conquering people as he goes, goes all the way down into the south, into the Negev, conquering people into the southwest of the Promised Land, taking out the Amorites 
and the Hittites. And then he circles back and he comes and he focuses on the southern part of the Dead Sea where those five king coalition is going to, there's going to be a battle there. Four kings against five. And Kedileomer defeats those those uh, five kings, and they we're told that the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and all their people fled, and that they some fell into the tar pits and died, and the rest fled into the hills. So Kedileomer gets what he wanted, possession of the promised land again. He took it by force. And in a way, I want to suggest that that is a window into how the world approaches possessions. If you can get it, get it. The strongest gets the most. It's there for the taking. I remember in the 80s and and maybe early 90s, uh, there was something called um, leverage buyouts, which is a really nice way of calling something a hostile takeover. There were hostile takeovers. You remember this, Barbarians at the Gate is the movie on, based on the book about the RJR Nabisco hostile takeover. And you had the, the big one of the, of the early millennium, actually, which was uh, AOL was hostily taking over Time Warner, if you remember those things. If you can get it, get it, even hostily. The world will tell you what you possess indicates your power and your prestige. What you possess defines you. The more you possess, the better. If you're stronger, it's there for the taking. All these describe kind of what Kedileomer's philosophy was. And the world, in this worldview, kind of distills down into our own hearts in various ways, doesn't it? In things like we say, the person with the most toys wins. Accumulate stuff, that's good. Or consumer therapy, have you ever heard of that? Where you actually just go and wander the aisles of, say, Walmart. You're not there for any specific reason, but it makes you feel good to actually buy something, at least for a little while. Or hoarding. People sometimes feel good just having stuff somewhere, whether it's in a storage unit or in the attic. It just feels good to have it. Or desire to have the newest and best. Apple has really mastered that, haven't they? I mean, they, they, they just prod us on and we just go along with this. I just need the new iPhone. Now, to be clear... Scripture's intent is not to drive us to the opposite either. In other words, minimalist living or simple living or slow living or living off the grid, that is not Scripture's intent to take us to that. That's more, no more noble than, than what we've just talked about. That's not Scripture's goal. No, whether you have much or little... God is all concerned about your heart. Where is your heart? He actually could care less if you have a storage unit. He could care 
He cares about your heart in each and every way. Where is your heart? Matthew 6 is totally clear about this when Jesus, preaching a Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss and rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says, here's the principle. Where your heart is, there, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Where your treasure is, there's where your heart be. Jesus is concerned where your heart is. He's concerned that we're not possessed by our possessions. 20th century Chinese pastor Watchman Nee wrote, The attitude of saints towards their possessions most assuredly signifies whether they continue to preserve their self-life or whether they have consigned it to death. I think what he's just doing is saying Galatians 5.24 in a different way. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our flesh desires stuff. Our flesh desires possessions. What scripture warns us against is the slow creep of being possessed by those possessions. That's what scripture is warning us against. Our passions and desires in our possessions. And that's what we see with this macro uh, view of the king coming down and taking possession of the promised land, but we also see it here on the micro level, don't we? In verse 12, we see it brings it from the macro right back down to the micro in Lot. Look at verse 12. We read there, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's, uh, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Here we're told that Lot had now moved into Sodom. This is new information, people. He had moved into Sodom. One subplot that you can read about in chapters 12 through 19, one of the subplots is Lot. The major character is who? Wrong. God. God is always the major character. Then you have two subplots, Abram and Lot. You learned a lot from that. We learned the last couple weeks that Abram, although he stumbles, and we'll see him stumble again next week, although he stumbles, he's learning. He's learning to live by faith. We see a man who's learning to live by faith. And with Lot, we see a person who is not learning. And we see that subplot here. He, didn't, he went to Egypt with Abram, and he didn't learn anything about that ex- from that experience. There's a slow progression that we see in Lot of him being possessed by possessions here. In chapter 13, we saw that he looked at this Zor area in the southern part of the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah were in the five cities, actually. And he saw that they were fertile and good, and he chose that. And then we see in chapter 13 a further move 
when we, when we read that he pitched his tent near Sodom. He was getting closer and closer. And here we see that he moves into Sodom. He wanted what the world had to offer. And in the next few chapters, in chapter 19, we'll see that when the angels are urging Lot out of Sodom, we read three absolutely devastating words. Here they've come to, to, tell, to save Lot from the judgment of God. And it says, but he lingered. Supernatural angels are telling you something. But the draw of the world and possessions is so strong that even then he lingers. Scripture is showing us an ungodly progression here of a person that knew God. You realize that? Lot knew God. We read in Second Peter that, that Lot was a righteous man. That means he believed what Abram believed. He believed in God. He had faith. But his heart was possessed by possessions and it led to living an almost indistinguishable life from the world. An almost indistinguishable life from the world. And therein lies the warning for you and me. We have to be on guard that our possessions do not take possession of our hearts. There seems to be a category in Scripture of people that are truly saved. That put their trust in Jesus. That know the gospel. Yet live almost indistinguishable lives from the world. We see this most clearly, perhaps, in the letter to the First Corinthians. We see right off in the, in the first line of his letter to them that he calls them those who are sanctified. He calls them saints. He believes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Corinthian church that he's writing to are compri- is a real church comprised of real believers. Yet, if you continue to read in that letter, and even the second letter, you see that they were living lives that, that were barely distinguishable from the world, and that's what caused Paul to write to that church and challenge those things. In chapter 3, Paul addresses them this way, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, he says, you are not ready. You are still of the flesh. Paul believed these Corinthians were saved, but they were still on milk, on the rudimentary things. They were still infants, he calls them, acting fleshly, indistinguishably from the world. This, brothers and sisters, is what we have to be aware of. We really have to be aware of this. One mark of being possessed by possessions is that if you look, if you have a person look at your life, they can't 
see any difference between you and maybe your next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And that, my friends, is a spiritually precarious place to be. It's a very precarious place to be. Precarious because there's little or no fruit, apparently, in your life. Spiritual fruit that people can look at and see, wow, that's different. Jesus said, by the fruit you will know them. Part, part of the fruit of true regeneration is that you live differently from the world in certain areas. That it's that we're marked off. We're called a marked off people. One of the definitions of being holy is being separated. The challenging question that I had to look at my life this week and that I put to you is can people look at your life and see that there's a difference. Can they see a different way of life, a different perspective on things, perhaps even, as we're talking about possessions, a different perspective on possessions? Do they see different passions, different motivators? Different desires, or are they the exact same as the world's? Is your life distinguishable from the world? Chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to talk, and he says there's, there's a very sad end to living an indistinguishable life, to, to not having the fruit in your life. He writes to them, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, his work, the work, the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, Ephesians 2.10, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. You know what he's saying there? You'll be saved, but you'll have nothing to show for your life. Just like Lot. If you go ahead to chapter 19, he lost everything. He was saved, but he had absolutely nothing to show for it. That is what being possessed by your possessions looks like in a Christian's life. But we're given another heart to look at here in our next section of Scripture. Look at what Abram's heart looked like. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, 
who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ishkol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his force against them by night, and he, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. What we see here in Abram is he sees what is true possessions. Abram, in this section of scripture, learns that Lot, his, his nephew, had been taken captive in this raid. And he acts. He calls together his fighting force and he takes his best, 318 of them, and goes in pursuit of Lot. He pursues them all the way up north into north of Damascus, about 160 miles away. For you and me, that's an easy drive. On foot, that's a long way to go. And against all odds, 318 against probably thousands, he actually defeats Kedilomer's army. And he rescues Lot and his people. What Abram is, is showing here is where his heart lies. Not in possessions, but in people. Not in possessions, but in relationship. Herodotus, Herodotus wrote, Of all the possessions in life, a friend is the most precious. Abram knew what was important, and he literally risks everything to go get Lot. He risks everything. Even though he had to pursue him 160 miles, a huge distance, he kept going. Even though he had an inferior force, he kept going. Even though Lot did not deserve saving. He kept going. And Abram, in the end, defeats the enemy and wins back his people. My goodness, people. Don't we hear our precious Savior? Don't you hear the gospel ringing out there? That's what Christ did for us. He so valued his people, he was willing to come a huge distance, not 160 miles, but heaven to earth. We just celebrated that, didn't we? Jesus so valued us that he was willing to be born under the law. That's what Galatians 4.4 tells us. What does that mean, Blake? What does that mean, being born under law? It means that he put himself under the regulations that he himself instituted. And he said, I will obey every single one of them. He agreed to live a perfect life. Jesus so valued us that he did not take a risk, but gave his very life. He knew he was going to die. Abram didn't know that. Christ knew that. Substituting himself for us on the cross. Jesus so valued us that even though we didn't deserve saving, he did it for us anyway. 
Do you realize you don't deserve saving? Can you say that out loud? You don't have to right now. But you should to remind yourself, I don't deserve this grace. I don't deserve saving. It's a good reminder. And like Abram, he did, he did not have to do this. He was not compelled. He was not forced. He was not coerced. He chose to come. He chose. I don't know if any of you have seen Saving Private Ryan. It's a good movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you. It's a movie about a small force of army rangers that are sent behind enemy lines in World War II to rescue or save a private called Ryan. There's the title. Tom Hanks plays Captain Tom Miller, who leads the rangers on a rescue mission, and they hit skirmish after skirmish, getting deeper and deeper behind enemy lines. Some are killed along the way, and they finally get to where Private Ryan is, right? And they tell him, they come to him, and they say, we've come to save you. We've come to rescue you. And Private Ryan doesn't want to go, right? He says, no, we're on the eve of a big battle, and I'm not leaving my, my, my company. And so what do the army rangers that came to save him do? They say, okay, we'll stay, and we'll fight with you. Private, uh, the little group of rangers ends up staying, and the climax of the movie is when Private Ryan makes his way over to Captain Miller, who has been shot, and he's dying, and he's on the ground. And Private Ryan leans down, and the captain of this army ranger group whispers two words, earn this. Earn this. Very powerful. Very, very poignant but also very wrong. An army ranger would never say those words. Why? You know what the motto of the army rangers is? Sua sponte. Sua sponte. You know what that means? I chose this. I volunteered for this. I give my life for you voluntarily. You don't have to pay anything for this. This is free. I chose this. And that's what Jesus Christ says with his last breath. He, said, he doesn't say earn this. He doesn't say, listen, I did this for you, now buck up, people. You know, suck it up. That's one of my family's mottos, unfortunately, I grew up with. Suck it up and earn this. He does not say that. What does he say? I give you this. I chose this. I volunteered for this because I love you. You don't have to pay anything for Christ's salvation. Because like Abram, Christ sees us as his ultimate possession. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? Us. 
you and me. He came and paid a ransom for us. That we might become, as Peter writes, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Isn't that beautiful? Dear ones, you are the apple of God's eye. You believe that? You're his joy. You're his special possession. And as we understand that, and as that drops from here to here, it changes us. It actually changes us. And that should engender a similar heart towards him. That's what the gospel does. It changes our hearts towards him. And we see that in the last section. Look with me at verse 17. After this, after his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shevaz, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten, and their share of the men who were with me. Let Enner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Here we see a possession test with Abram. Upon returning, Abram faces a test of what he truly possesses. He's come away from this battle with more possessions than he had before. And two kings come out to greet him, don't they? Bera, king of Sodom, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. And Abram faces a test. King Bera makes what would be considered at that time an amazingly generous offer. He says, just give me the people. You can keep all the possessions, any, all the gold, all the silver, all the camels, all everything. Just give me the people. You earned it, Abram. And here's where we see real spiritual growth with Abram. In Egypt, when Pharaoh said that, what did he do? Great. More. Excellent. I get more. He took the possessions, didn't he? He sold his wife and he took the booty. He left Egypt with all those possessions. But here he tells the king of Sodom what? No thanks. No thanks. Verse 22, 23, and 24. He's not keeping a thread or a sandal strap, is he? Just, you can do that with my allies, but for me, no thank you. He had growth through 
being possessed by these possessions. And that is further reinforced by how he reacts to the second king that comes out to greet him, King Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a very interesting figure in Scripture. The text tells us that he was king of Salem, that is Jerusalem. He comes out and he blesses Abram, right? Performing a priestly function. So he's king and priest. He's a believer of Abram's God, God Most High, according to the blessing. And on top of that, what you see is his name is a compound Hebrew word, Melech Zedek, king of righteousness. He's the king of a city named Shalom, peace. He's the king of peace. He feeds Abram bread and wine. Now, that could just be a euphemism for he brings out a great feast, and that's probably what happened. But through New Testament eyes, we see that and go, hmm. Certainly brings the Lord's Supper to mind. The parallels to Christ are so overwhelming that the writer of the Hebrews picks up on this. And it mentions him several times throughout the book of Hebrews. In chapter 7, he writes this about Melchizedek. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Hebrews teaches us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is a foreshadowing, a very, very vivid, actually, foreshadowing of of the Messiah. A Messiah that is king, that is, he's Lord over your life. A Messiah that is a priest who doesn't offer bulls and goats, but offers himself. The Messiah is the king of peace. He brings peace between you and God. You realize, hopefully, that in Romans 5, when you have peace with God, that means real peace. In other words, you you were at war with God before. Christ brings real peace between you and God. The Messiah who blesses us and delivers us from our enemies, sin, Satan, and the flesh. A Savior who is so much greater and has done so much on our behalf that we owe everything to him. Let me repeat that. A Savior who is so much greater and has done so much on our behalf that we owe everything to him. That is precisely what's going on with Abram giving him a tenth. He is recognizing that. Do you realize that when we did the offering this morning, you were recognizing that? What Abram was doing here... And what you are doing is one and the same. I'm just giving you a tithe. And and God, it represents everything. You can have everything. You can have the cars, the home, the the 401ks, my checking account. It's all yours. What do you want to do with it? What do you want to do with it? It's not mine. That's what you're saying when you do the offering. That simple tithe tells us that he had possessions in the right place in his life. Abraham had the possessions in the right place in his life. It wasn't his. 
He's a simple steward, as we've been learning in Sunday school class. I encourage you to come. It's an incredibly well-taught class. It all belongs to God. Abram's possessions paled in comparison to the riches he had in God. And that's the rub. That's it, guys. That's where you have to come to. Your possessions pale in comparison to the riches you have in Christ. That's when you know your heart is in the right place. When that penny drops. And you really believe that and you start living like that. And when you start living like that, your life begins to look differently from the world around you. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul writes that we have unfathomable riches in Christ. Isn't that a wonderful word? Unfathomable riches. Everything else pales in comparison, Paul says. In closing, and before we take the Lord's Supper together, I just want to list out for you just a few of those riches you have in Jesus Christ. And think about these as you're taking communion today. Because these, these are yours in Christ. The Bible says that you're reconciled to God. Your relationship is right. That you're redeemed by God. That you were chosen. That you are totally forgiven. Sins you did in the past, sins you're doing right now, and sins in the future. Forgiven. There's no condemnation in God's heart and in his mind towards you. That's, that's unbelievable. You're free from the law. You're freed from that burden because Christ has fulfilled that for you. You're adopted as children of God. The Spirit is inside of you. The Spirit is part of you. You are loved. You are protected. You are made righteous. You are justified. You are born again. You're delivered from darkness. Peter says, a royal priesthood. You're a member of Christ's body. Think about that, that wonderful metaphor that, that Paul uses. A member of Christ's body. You're a people of God, having access to God whenever you want it through prayer. Do you know how many saints desperately wanted that privilege? You're heavenly citizens. You're co-heirs with Christ. And I'll repeat once again, you are God's dearest possessions. Dearest possessions. Let's meditate on those as we go into the Lord's Supper. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your love for us and for all that you give us. And Spirit, remind us of those things again and again and again. We are such a forgetful people. Bring those things to mind, Holy Spirit, the riches we have in Christ, so that we will not be possessed by our possessions, but we'll realize our true possession is you. All we need, pearl of great price. In Jesus' name, amen.